People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary, and not guaranteed. This episode of Clear and Vivid with Allison Schrager is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle— and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. So I get an email from them saying, well, if you're going to be writing about brothels, you should be writing about the best brothel because we're the best brothel. (laughs) I was like, I don't write about brothels, but um, I'm going to take this call, obviously. If you, when you read the book, you see I went into all these strange subcultures. So I had to bang on a lot of doors to get people to talk to me and explain the secrets of how things work. And I heard no a lot. And it was actually the time in the brothel I had before that I think really got me to be a point where like Dennis said to me, you know, if you don't hear no, you haven't asked for enough. Mm. And I'm like, all right, I still hate hearing no, but I tell myself every time someone says no to me, I asked for enough. That's Alison Schrager, whose book An Economist Walks Into a Brothel not only has a wonderfully provocative title, it also offers wonderfully sage advice on topics as varied as how to take risks and how hearing the word no can actually mean you've done well in a negotiation. Allison, I'm so glad to be talking to you today because you are some communicator. <laughs> just, just take the title of your book. I mean, that you get you get our attention immediately with that title. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm not normally a good title maker, but something you know, it initially was a uh, a chapter subhead, but I actually did come up with it. Oh, that's great. And mm-hmm. that's it happens a lot, doesn't it? You're you're thinking about one part of your story mm-hmm. 
and a phrase emerges that really captures the whole thing. Yeah, you know, it didn't even occur to me it sounds like a joke. I mean, I know that sounds so obvious, but for me it was— I put myself in all these really strange situations that were so outside my comfort zone, and it was certainly a brothel that was one of them. And I felt like once I walked in there, it just felt like I was in another universe. So the book is about assessing risk, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. What do you mean by risk, first of all, so I know I'm talking about the same thing you are? Well, people define risk differently, but the way I think about it and the way it's defined in financial economics is risk is a whole range of things that could happen. Anytime you make a decision, it's a risk, and good things can happen and bad things can happen. And what risk is, is it's a measurement of all those things, so something you can estimate. What did you learn about risk management when you visited the brothel that you write about in the book? Well, so my idea going there was that you can always put a price on risk. And so, you know, the sex industry, it's a very risky business. So what I look— It's risky because of possible disease, violence— Yeah, or if you're—most sex workers work illegally, so they risk arrest. Right. And if you're a customer, you risk arrest, public shaming. Mm -hmm. You know, we've certainly a lot of high-profile people have lost their livelihoods and careers because they got caught. So uh, I initially went to the brothel the first time to learn negotiation skills. Uh, They invited me there because they have a very extensive negotiation training program. They invited you there. How did they know (laughs) who you were? (laughs) So, um, How do you get an invitation from a place like that? You know, I'm an economist who studies retirement, so Uh it wasn't a normal invite. Um, I have a relative who, when I was trying to come up with a book proposal, I was like, I I need to meet interesting risk takers. Do you know anyone who's committed a crime? Mm. And he said to me, yeah, you know, my girlfriend runs an illegal sex business. Um, Why don't you talk to her? And so I spoke to her, and it turns out she ha- she runs an illegal sex business online, and she takes one-third of her uh, workers' um, earnings to screen all the customers to make sure that they're safe. And I was like, oh, that's a risk premium. That's so interesting. So I wrote an article about it for Quartz, and it did super well. And it turns out, like any industry, there's a hierarchy and the Bunny Ranch um, is like the Goldman Sachs of sex brothels. So this is in Nevada? <laughs> it's in Nevada. So I get an email from them saying, well, if you're going to be writing about brothels, you should be writing about the best brothel because we're the best brothel. <laughs> I was like, I don't write about brothels. But um, I'm going to take this call, obviously. And... Um, I get on the call, and he starts explaining the sex industry to me, and it really honestly didn't interest me that much. But then he said something really interesting to me. He said, you know, um, the women, they come here, and every transaction is individually negotiated. We don't have set prices. So I was like, oh, so you have women who are about 20 negotiating with men who are in their 60s for tens of thousands of dollars? Mm. And he's like, yeah, and, you know, no one's ever asked about that before. It's interesting. They come here not really knowing their value, so we have a training program to teach them how to negotiate better. Mm. And I was like, I would really like to see that. So they're like, why don't you come out? And so what I, do they teach them? 
oh, actually, I ran by what they taught them, and it changed my life, too. Like, I actually really learned how to negotiate there. Tell me. what This is interesting. Um, I ran it by a business school professor, and it's exactly what they teach in MBA programs. So Dennis Hoff, who owned the brothel before he died, uh, used to sell timeshares. So he was trained in this, which is it's certain things like you don't, when you negotiate, just say, you know— take or leave $10,000. What you do is you offer a set of options, like a menu. That way it's less adversarial. So you don't say, you know, $10,000, take it or leave it. The women there, someone would come in, they're a little nervous, they'd hold their hands, and they would say, listen, I know you've never done this before, but how about we take a bath, and then we have dinner, and then we'll Mm. do whatever sex act, and then you'll sleep over. And the guy will be like, that's amazing. I'd love to do that. And then she's like, yes, and that will be (laughs) $10,000. And they're like, whoa, I was thinking it would be like $200. So (laughs) then she'll be like, all right, maybe we'll take dinner out of the cart. And so until they get to that place, so therefore, you're not like having this interaction where it's yes or no and someone has to hear no. It's just you're choosing a menu. And But you do hear no, which is something I was always very uncomfortable with, which Dennis became like a therapist to everyone there and to me of letting me feel more comfortable hearing no. So how did it affect your life? That's interesting. It made me—I think it definitely gave me a lot of the bravery to do the book because it made me more comfortable with rejection because— when you if you when you read the book, you see I went into all these strange subcultures to find out how they worked, and some of them were more secretive than others. So I had to bang on a lot of doors to get people to talk to me and explain the secrets of how things work. And I heard no a lot. And it was actually the time in the brothel I had before that I think really got me to be a point where, like Dennis said to me, you know, if you don't hear no, you haven't asked for enough. Mm. And I'm like, all right, I still hate hearing no, but I tell myself every time someone says no to me, I asked for enough. Something I felt as I was reading, and there was one sentence that really got to me, oh, where yeah? they, they come out and they present themselves to the customer, mm-hmm. a line of women uh-huh. with their hands behind their back mm-hmm. and wait to be selected. And I thought, I felt that was a very sad image. And I thought, what about the risk that they face that they may not be aware of, of the emotional toil this is, the the emotional cost to them of putting themselves in that? And that's even before they go in and get uh, physically used. You know, so what did, is that factored in in any way? That was my first response. Like, when the first time you see an, a lineup, it is, like, you know, jarring. I mean, as a woman, to me, it just looked incredibly demeaning. Um but and I asked all the all these women like, do you feel rejected? And this is interesting. And when you're there a lot, you actually see this is true. They're like, no, because there's someone for everyone. Like in society, we have a very narrow definition of what's attractive. We always think, you know, you must have these features to be attractive. You must be this age range. You must be this thin. Um, you must have this hair color or whatever. But when you see a lot of these lineups come and go, you see, you know, they have all types at the brothel and you see all types get picked, Mm. all ages, all ranges. And you realize, you know, we have our societal definition of what's attractive, but what men going to a brothel are looking for is a very wide range. Sometimes company. Yeah. Yeah. And who they feel comfortable with. 
And I mean, it was sometimes it sounds kind of sick, but you could almost, when someone would walk in, almost predict who they were going to pick. And it wasn't the most beautiful woman in the lineup. Right. It would be something about his body type, makes sense with that body type, and that would be who he would pick. Am I wrong to assume that going through the whole range of activities, not just being selected, mm-hmm. but what comes after being selected and doing that over and over again, am I wrong to think that there's a psychological price you have to pay? I think the women who work there um, have a, a different composition to them. I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. Yeah, you you approach it in your writing in a very mm. even-handed, objective way, I think. Yeah. I mean, I can't say I ever felt like, comfortable there, but they definitely have a different approach to sex than I do. Um, some there just for the money, and maybe it is hard for them. Others, I met a woman there. She's a mother of five in North Dakota, and she says she goes there to get away from her kids. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that's so complicated, I can't begin to process it. You, you hear everything. <laughs> you started with mm-hmm. the brothel. Mm-hmm. What was the next place you went, the next world you immersed yourself in? The next one was the paparazzi. I had, They were in New York, so I didn't actually have to live amongst them. And you really hung out with paparazzi for long hours, didn't you? And they were the hardest to— group to penetrate. Like, they were very reluctant to talk oh, to what, me. what, they value their privacy? Is yeah. that the problem? Oh, that's <laughs> kind of ironic, that. isn't when it? I, when I start going up to them on the street, and I'm like, I really want to tell your side of the story. And they're like, we like our privacy. <laughs> that's a killer. So what did you learn from them? What was there about reducing risk or managing risk that you learned from them? Well, there's different kinds of risk, you know, and this is true. My The whole premise of the book is that these sort of basic frameworks of risk measurement and management from financial markets work in every market. And in financial markets, there's roughly two kinds of risk. There's what we call idiosyncratic risk, which is the risk an individual stock will rise or fall. And then there's systematic risk, which is the risk that the whole stock market will crash. Mm. And the paparazzi face a lot of both. Actually, we all do. And that, but they face a lot, a lot of extreme, both kinds of risk, because they have the idiosyncratic risk that one day they're going to get that perfect shot. Or the, or the other side of it, the star will one day not be shootable. Yeah, they do that a lot. Like the, if they, you know, they put their, they can wait five hours for a shot, and if the star keeps their head down, it's worthless. Mm-hmm. So it's completely random and idiosyncratic. And the way you manage idiosyncratic risk in the stock market is you hold a, you buy a mutual fund. Like you just buy a lot of stocks, and if you hold enough stocks, there's no idiosyncratic risk. And what the paparazzi do is they do something similar: is they form these alliances of other paparazzo. So they tip themselves off when there's. Um, uh, t- they let them. They let the, everyone in the network know that there's a uh, a tip if it comes up, like you know, Alec Baldwin's going to be here, so better go. Or they might do a stakeout together so they can hit different entrances of a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And this is effectively pooling their risk together and diversifying it. But it doesn't do much for the bigger risk, which is uh, systematic risk, which is like I said, the whole risk, the whole market could collapse because once uh, pictures started being sold online and people stopped buying glossy magazines, the market for their photos has just dropped. There used to be something called, oh, it's still called this, a just like us photo. It started in Us Weekly. It's a picture of a celebrity doing something boring, like getting coffee. Right, taking out the garbage. Yeah. And so in like what they call the gold rush era, like the Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears umbrella era, that kind of picture would get $10,000. Now it only gets five. 
it's still a lot of money for nothing. Five dollars? Oh, five dollars. I yeah. thought you said five thousand. Oh no, no, no. Five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so their uh, their profession mm-hmm. is kind of uh, shaky, uh, ridden with risk. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, we're all dealing with these sorts of risks. Like you have idiosyncratic risk if you have a job and that particular job doesn't work out. But then we also are facing much more systematic risk, which is the risk your whole industry could disappear. When you examined the the uh, effort in the movie industry to turn it into a formula, mm-hmm. what what particular risk were you exploring there? I, I remember when this was – I was still directing movies when mm-hmm. this guy who fig- felt he had figured out mm-hmm. how to uh, reduce or eliminate risk in the, what and how you put a movie mm-hmm. together. And uh, – I, I I remember thinking this is not going to work. What what was he actually trying to do? How did he think he had it worked out? He thought actually he could use the tools from finance. He thought if he had all this old perfect data, as you know, in the movie industry, uh, film studios are very secretive with their profit data. So they gave him access to it. So he was able to, he said, put odds on based on things that happened in the past, how likely a movie in the future would be. It's like So they, what the story is, what, what the, the stars star, are, you know, what type of movie it is, you know, the marketing strategy. And you get some predictability. But the problem with movies is the industry changes so quickly. So data that was five years old just tells you nothing. I mean, think about what the movie industry was five years ago, like before streaming has just completely mm-hmm. changed the economics of movies. Mm-hmm. I know if you watch a movie now and you're not, you don't have the urge to watch the mm-hmm. next chapter, mm-hmm. you, you're cheated. Yeah, and not only that, the the Amazon or Disney or whoever knows. So before you didn't have great data. I mean, you had box office data, but you didn't really know who was seeing what movie and whether or not they really liked it. Now it's like they know all your demographics. They know whether or not you finish it. I initially was interested in what this guy was doing mm-hmm. because I have an affinity for for um, formulas. Mm-hmm. I, I, oh, yeah? I, I love formulas. I, when I was a kid, I, I was very young. I had a family. We, we had three daughters, mm-hmm. and I wasn't getting work as an actor, mm-hmm. so I sold mutual funds. I was a taxi driver. Really? Yeah, I did a lot of jobs. <laughs> I was a doorman. Uh-huh. One time, but I... I thought my wife's my wife's uh, father had introduced me to the racetrack, uh-huh. and I thought, well, this is interesting, but I don't want to gamble. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not going to gamble our mm-hmm. money away. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But if I had a formula, that wouldn't be gambling. <laughs> so I researched formulas for about six months or more, and one day a mutual fund appointment mm-hmm. fell through, and I said, I'm, I'm going to go research mm-hmm. this. Somewhere. And Arlene's my wife said, mm-hmm. stop with the research. Go to the racetrack. Get it over with. <laughs> so I took all our money and I went to the racetrack, and I was using a system called the Martingale mm-hmm. system, where w- when the research I had read up to that point, fortunes had been made with it. Mm-hmm. I missed the ones where fortunes had been lost. Yeah, well, this— But I want—we well, lived for a month off the racetrack. It works till it doesn't. That's right. And, I mean, I think you've just told a parable that describes pretty much every financial crisis. Everyone has this formula that works till it doesn't. Yeah, and and Galbraith wrote a book about, mm-hmm. about that where he t- said every generation can't remember the previous generation's foolishness, mm-hmm. and they they create their own set of foolishness all over again and think— Oh my God! I've got it now, mm-hmm. and they don't. 
they don't they don't keep in mind that there's going to be that disaster. Exactly, because as we were saying about the way you measure risk, is you get comfortable in that zone of what's predictable, what's roughly predictable. But then you always have these tail events or something you never could imagine happening. And, you know, that's not I like the formulas. Like, I think the formulas are helpful, but you have to recognize their limitations. How do you know what the limitation of a formula is? Because I, I, there was a uh, in, in all the research mm-hmm. I did, mm-hmm. I came across these magazines that would say, if you followed this formula, mm-hmm. you would have made a million dollars in July of 1952. Uh-huh. Because, in fact, if you take one month of results, you can figure out a formula mm-hmm. that will produce a tremendous profit that month. Mm-hmm. But that's the only month in all of human history that it'll ever work. Well, that's why I am a fan of using as much data as possible. But this is also what makes movie prediction impossible because... You don't have enough data. You don't have enough... There are too many variables. Well, and also, like, movie data from 10 years ago, I mean, people made money off DVD sales 10 years ago. Right. It's worthless. Right. So you need a lot of history, and you need that history to be relevant. We're taking a short break from my conversation with economist Allison Schrager. And when we come back... Allison dives into the worlds of professional poker, horse racing, and even surfing to discover strategies that could actually make you a better investor. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary, and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Allison Schrager. You know, when we were talking about how you know how much risk to take, Mm -hmm. I was thinking of when you immersed yourself in the world of poker players. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems there, as I imagine it, or as I think I remember from your book, is that they would sometimes get overconfident. Mm -hmm. How do you know when you're confident enough and not overconfident? Because when I'm overconfident, I feel it's just right Mm -hmm. on the confidence scale. Well, it's hard because, you know, it's it's a behavioral bias that's well documented is you, you have moments where people do feel overconfident and or, you know, in... With the poker players, I learned that often that need to take more risk is when you're down. Like so they're, they're losing and they say, I got to take more risk, keep betting, hoping I'm going to get it because I'm down and I got to get back to even. Yeah. And when they're up, they take less risk. But really, statistically, you're just as likely to lose, win or lose a hand whether or not you're up or down. So you should really, if you, the poker player I spoke to um, is like, you should pay consistently all the time. And he's developed all these tricks to sort of rein in his overconfidence. Like what? Well, um, 
First of all, he never has too much of his own money at stake. He has other people uh, pay his—they they, they take a piece of his winnings if they put up the the money for the poker tournament. So therefore, he doesn't have that much of his own money at stake, so less of his ego's involved. Hmm. He also cuts all these side deals with the other poker players, like if they're about— <laughs> How does that work? So if they're about to— play like whatever last couple of hands the two poker players will, will, will go aside and be like listen you know there's a million dollars at stake zero if you get nothing let's agree we're each going to get 250,000 and then whoever wins gets the remaining 500 huh. so you you've created this lower bound on your earnings so you so you instead of your biggest loss being zero it's only 250 Mm. Um, of course, you give up some earnings for that too, because now the, instead of the big the winning, you don't get a million; you get seven fifty. So this gets into the area that you talk about a lot: a hedge. Yeah, is that a hedge? What it's you just hedge. described? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no. The hedge is when he uh, has other people do his buy-in because uh-huh. they get a fraction of all of his earnings. What I just described is actually technically insurance, because if you you're give, you're paying a premium. So you're 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 buying mm-hmm. a known outcome. Yeah, that's insurance. So yeah, if you lose, you get two fifty. Right. Sort of like if you there's a fire in your house, you get money. So that it kind of reduces the anxiety, I guess. Exactly, and this is what allows um, this poker player is Phil Holmuth, who's known for being very sort of uh, um, sort of unpredictable and temperamental, um, but when he plays, he's actually quite rational. Hmm. What do you think was the most interesting world that you immersed yourself in? I couldn't say one was the most. I loved them all. Like when I was doing it, it would be all I would talk about. And I think it was the most interesting thing I'd ever <laughs> yeah. done. But I, I think I had the most fun in Hawaii. I'd never been to Hawaii before. And for me to go to a surfer risk conference was just so fun. So the surfers have their own risk conference. That's yeah. interesting. So they're really aware. of the. I think of surfers, and I guess a lot of us do, as sort of crazy guys looking for ways to get killed. That's what I always thought. I, you think they're going to be these daredevils. But instead, they have a, a regular risk conference where uh, they debate all the same strategies that I am just applied to surfing. And, in fact, I met this man there named Brian Kiolana who brought jet skis to big wave surfing. So what do they use the jet jet skis for? Well, jet skis actually are a lot like financial derivatives. And that <laughs> jet skis are financial derivatives. I <laughs> well, love that. So a financial derivative is technically insurance. So you buy yeah. insurance against an asset price falling too large. But you can also use them as leverage so you can take bigger risks and uh-huh. also face bigger losses. So what jet skis do is they're like insurance. If you wipe out, they're sitting there in the water and they'll rescue you. But you can also use them to push you on a bigger wave and take a bigger risk. They push you? So bigger waves travel faster. Uh-huh. And so um, he, humans can't, like, paddle on a wave that's a, over, like, maybe 30 or 40 feet. So, but if you have a—if you're on a jet ski, the jet ski can sort of push you onto a bigger wave. So now you can put, surf a wave that's, say, 80 feet. Oy. But the thing is, it's like finance. People, you know, lever up and they have all these derivatives, so they think they're safe. But there's no way an 80-foot wave is safe. And there's no way taking a lot of financial risk is ever safe. So the whole point of this conference is this guy started it, the guy who brought jet skis to big wave surfing, because he felt like people, he'd enabled people to take these huge risks they weren't prepared for and didn't realize. So he started this annual risk conference to talk about how to be smarter about risk, how to plan for risk. 
So, as I remember, there's a risk that's personal, mm-hmm. and the jet ski mm-hmm. sort of helps out there. Mm-hmm. But then there's a risk to the whole system, right? People yeah. have to rescue you. People have to risk their lives when you wipe out. So, and and then I remember this very interesting thing. There were weren't there discussions about whether or not they should allow just anybody to wear a jacket that would protect them. Yes. And then why was that? Well, so each new so big wave surfing started with just a bunch of guys in the water and a surfboard, and there's been this um, new innovation that's constantly coming along that makes it possible to for weaker swimmers or weaker surfers to surf bigger waves. So it started with a leash, then it was the jet ski, and now it's something called an inflatable vest, which is it's just like a vest that goes on top of your wetsuit. It's very thin, but if you start drowning, you pull a, a cord and it turns into a full-on life jacket that gets you uh, to the top. You become a boat. Exactly. So when I was there, there were these like really sort of impassioned discussions about who should have access to this because they anticipate like everything else. It's going to mean surfers who have no business surfing large waves are going to be out there and pose risks to others. To others, and then maybe you have more debts too because exactly. they think they're protected. So, I mean, but this is the same conversation we're having in financial markets is you have these derivatives and you can take all this leverage and you can actually bring the whole financial system down. So who should be able to buy them? So the whole question of regulation Mm -hmm. plays into this because regulation is a way to reduce – it's intended as a way to reduce harm to the whole system, right? Yeah, although it's interesting because, you know – I think you need that regulation, and usually it needs to come from some outside body, often the government. It makes a lot of sense for finance, but when I ask surfers if you should have that sort of regulation, should there be a license? You know, like there's a license for scuba diving, should there be a license for big wave surfing? They all hated that idea. They were like, no, we need to keep the government out of surfing. Um, but they all expected the, the companies that made the vests to self-regulate, which I think uh. seems like a little unfair. Yeah, well, are they? What incentive do they have? Well, also, I mean, it's expensive to develop these this technology. And I spoke to one guy who worked on developing it, and he's just like, "Listen, you know, this is a life saving piece of technology. Are we supposed to say to someone you can't buy it because you don't have the skills?" When when the government says we're going to, we just had this horrible disaster of mm-hmm. nineteen twenty nine mm-hmm. or the one in two thousand and eight. Uh, and the government says we're not going to let people leverage mm-hmm. so so much mm-hmm. that if a, if a little downtick occurs, everything comes tumbling down. Mm-hmm. That's that sounds to me like it's an attempt to protect the system, and everybody ought to benefit from that. Yes, but there's always resistance to it, and is and each new generation wants to find a way around that. Well, there's a lot of money from taking leverage. So an individual always has an incentive to do more, especially if the losses are shared amongst everyone. Right. right. <laughs> That's why regulators have to be like, too bad. This is very interesting. You, you, you studied the world of the brothel, movies, paparazzi, poker, surfers, and horse breeding. Yes. What did you learn about horse breeding? Um, I learned a lot about horse breeding because I, I, I didn't know much about it before. 
So um, it turns out that a change in the 1986 tax code really transformed the market for horses. So before that, a lot of people, you'd breed a horse, you'd race a horse. But And most people, most of the time, that didn't work out. It's a very risky thing to do. It's a lot of money. It was between stud fees, between training the horse, keeping the horse, racing the horse. So after 1986 tax reform, for a variety of reasons, it no longer became a profitable tax shelter. So all of a sudden, people actually had to make money on these horses. So what everyone did is they, instead of breeding a horse to race, they sold a horse after one year. The thing is, though, After one year, you don't really know how good a racer it's going to be yet. You don't really have that much information. So uh, the only information you really have is who its parents are. And, you know, you, you don't have a lot of control of who the mayor is, but you do have a lot of – you can pick who the studs are because, you know, a horse can breed up to three times a day. Hmm. So what you ended up doing is just this collapse of the stud industry where there was just a – very small number of high-end studs everyone wanted to breed with, which meant horses got way more inbred. Which was not good for the whole system. Right? Yeah, it's bad diversification. You know, th there's benefits to genetic diversification. What are you like after all this study of risk and you've mm -hmm. devoted not mm -hmm. just the time you spent writing the mm -hmm. book, but your your education, your, mm -hmm. your, your work on this— mm -hmm. How are you with regard to risk? Are you more risk-averse than, than not, or are you less risk-averse? In some ways. I mean, I, I'm a cautious person. Like, I, I don't ski. I think it looks terrifying to me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> you know, I think we all have ways in which we're risk-takers or risk-averse. Like, I feel like I'm a risk-averse person. I mean, I'm a retirement economist. It's not exactly the sexiest job. Yeah, instead of, like, doing what I should have done, which is work for the government or for a corporation or in a university, I went to brothels and wrote a book about it. So I, I guess I have some risk-taking in me. Are there parts of your lives where you're more risk-averse than others? Does it is it— Once you get a sense of risk in mm -hmm. one area, mm -hmm. does it slop over into other areas or or are different different approaches to life and finance and I mean are, can somebody be more risk averse choosing a life partner and less risk averse in choosing a, an investment? Totally. You know, thinking about risk systematically, you can do that everywhere. But as I said, people I know who are the most risk averse then often take the biggest risks in some other area. Like, I know a lot of people who, when they chose a life partner, you know, didn't maybe marry the person they were madly in love with because they were afraid that made them vulnerable. Huh. Instead, they'd marry someone they felt, you know, more safe with, more secure, though they ended up not being as happy because they weren't married to someone they were in love with. Mm. So often, you know, that turned out to be a bad risk or they thought they were protected when they weren't. Um, you know, but, you know, when you think of it this way, you, I mean, I think the biggest way you can manage risk in your life is to be very clear of what you want. Yeah, I, that's what I'm really interested mm -hmm. because now that we bring up these different areas mm -hmm. of life in which mm -hmm. evaluating risk becomes possible and important, mm -hmm. what, are, what are the things we have to keep in mind to, to assess risk better? Oh, I think, as I said, I go through all these fancy things, all the hedging, all the financial derivatives, but really being clear on what you want out of life, because you take risks to get what you want. So you need to take risks to get more, but you should only take a risk if it's going to bring you closer to something you want. And often we just take a risk for the sake of taking a risk, because we just, we want change or we want something new. But you really have to be thoughtful of 
is this going to get me closer to my goal? I mean, I even see this in finance where, you know, I study retirement, where people aren't really thinking, well, what do I need in retirement? Instead, they're just like, well, I just want to have as much money as possible. Well, that's not really a clear financial goal. It's a lot harder (laughs) to make that goal if you're like— There are a lot of people who say, all I want is more. Yeah, and, you know, that. so the best way to do that is just take a lot of risk. But then, you know, you could have a stock market crash before you retire. So that you're sort of you're setting yourself up for a lot of failure there, as opposed to if you're more thoughtful and you're like, I want $50,000 a year in income, you can invest for that. And you're much more likely to get that. So in every area of your mm-hmm. life, it's a good idea to have a goal. Exactly. What, and then, what's next? Well, you want to have a goal. And you want to take risks that bring you closer to the goal. And then from there, you can do things to manage the risks. You can hedge, you can insure, you can diversify. These are the sort of three things you can do to reduce risk. But as we were talking earlier, you have to be clear that even if you have the best strategy in the world, you've diversified, you've hedged, you've insured, there's always things that can happen you don't anticipate. So you always have to be ready to for, for the unexpected. So I'm curious. You're on a date with a guy, uh-huh. and you think I got a hedge here. Uh-huh. How would you? How how would you hedge? You have an alternative plan. Like what? My my grandmother calls me and I tells me I got to get out of I, this. I date. have a I have a dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I made plans with a friend long ago, and it was great to see you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's your hedge. That's your hedge. You got, you got an out if you mm-hmm. need it. Yeah, of course. If you're having a great date, then you have some friend waiting for you in a restaurant, so you give up that possibility. Yeah, but that, then you know, you, you, the friend knows that it was worth it, so your friend's happy for you. I'm, I'm a better friend than that. I'm just like give up on the great date, and I'm like, oh, I have this plan. Or you go with the, with the friend waiting you in the restaurant. You can't leave a friend waiting in a restaurant. That's terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> I guess you, you have to be madly in love on the first date not to, keep, not to ditch the friend. Exactly. That's a high bar. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not a good one to live by either. Yeah, no. This has been really wonderful. No, I'm, thank I'm, you. I've, I've had such a good time. Uh, me too. I've really learned a lot from you here. Oh, thank you. We always end our podcast with seven quick questions. Mm-hmm. I hope you're up for it. Oh, it's, uh, sure. They're my, mainly about communicating and relating. Mm-hmm. What's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to someone? Um, probably in um, I've tried to have to explain investments to my mother. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Investments mm-hmm. to your mother. Mm-hmm. How do you handle a nosy person? I'm pretty open. So you just go ahead and let them ask you questions. You have a you have a a, a stop where a stop sign where they can't go past. I you give them enough information, but not more than you want to give. Yeah, I you know a, people are pretty self involved, so you just give them that little bit and then turn the question to them. Yeah, that's a good way to handle it. I had a friend once who said, I, "I'm very personal, but I'm private too." Mm-hmm. And the difference between being personal and private is interesting. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Huh. That's a good question. Um, it would have to be when I was in the brothel and someone asked me to negotiate with them. <laughs> you mean a customer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know whether to congratulate well, I mean, you or not. You feel like, you know, it's an occupational hazard being there, but you have to understand yeah. all the women are in their underwear, and I was wearing normal clothes. So maybe that was more attractive to this person. But why did he no, assume actually, you were working there? Actually, he, w- 
he was trying to make a deal with all the women in the brothel, and they all said no, and I was his last choice. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, maybe that's—I'm going to get off this question right now. This is a safer question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? How do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't know if you can stop a compulsive talker. So you just let them talk? Um, actually, you ask them questions. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, number six. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone you don't know at a dinner party? Um, hmm. That's a good question. I'm not a, I don't know if I'm a very good conversationalist. Well, you have been today. <laughs> um... Well, I never like to ask people what they do because that's always mm. boring. That that because then people never say anything interesting. Um, I usually will ask them what was the last good meal they had. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's you can I tell know. a lot by what people eat. Hey, I never heard that before. Last question: What gives you confidence? I did a lot of math in grad school, and I feel like I'm good at math anyway. I wasn't naturally, and that made me feel like I can do anything. Because it was hard to do and you accomplished it? It was hard. I didn't know a lot of math. I learned a lot of math very fast. I was able to do very advanced math. And, and, you know, especially when you're a woman in a quantitative field, people always try to, you know, think you're not going to know stuff. But when you've done that much math, you feel very confident. That's great. What a nice conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. I did too, very much. Thanks, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Alison Schrager is an economist, a journalist at Quartz, and co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners, which is a risk advisory firm. She's also a professor at New York University. Allison has been a regular contributor to The Economist, Reuters, and Bloomberg Businessweek, and you'll definitely want to pick up a copy of her recent book, An Economist Walks Into a Bravo. For more information about Allison Schrager and all her work, please visit alisonschrager.com. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Isabel Allende. She's one of the best-known and most beloved Latin American authors of all time. Her books, including The House of the Spirits and Eva Luna, are intoxicating. 
A master of magical realism, she creates unforgettable characters that move us through powerful stories. My grandmother would uh, have seances to call the spirits around a round table that I have in my house. This is a Spanish table that weighs a ton. You need two men to move it. And according to the legend, as I said, my family legend, my grandmother could move it with one finger. So I grew up with with the idea that everything is possible, that you have to be open to the mystery. Of course, there's a lot of craziness around this, but from a literary point of view, it enlarges and enriches everything. How to communicate with passion and heart. Isabel Allende, next time on Clear and Vivid. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.